Hi, this is Zoe Routh, and I work with CEOs and their teams to do the people stuff better. One of the questions I get asked occasionally is, what leadership style should work the best? How should I show up as leader? And one of the things that we seem to be allergic to is the command and control leadership. And I think that's right. Command and control has no place in the contemporary leadership context in which we find ourselves. And yet it has been unjustly, so my guest says, attributed to military leadership. So in this wonderful interview, we are going to debunk some of the myths of military leadership and really go in deep into what kinds of practices and structures the military has in place that is really useful in other contexts as in leadership and something that we can learn from them to create really powerful, effective, loyal teams. So let me tell you about my amazing guest today. His name is Brigadier Nick Jantz. He's retired. He has an OAM, an Order of Australia Medal, for his contribution to community recovery in his hometown of Marysville after the 2009 Black Saturday bushfires. He spent the years of 17 to 70, more or less, working in the military with a little bit of time out in consulting and so on. He describes himself as a soldier, as a scholar and a management consultant across all those experiences. He has a lot to share, a lot of wisdom and some great stories. Oh, one more thing. Before we get into it, I would love you if you would share this episode. If you found value in this and you think somebody else might enjoy this interview and get some value from it too, please hit share and send them the link. I'd really, really appreciate it. Okay, thanks. Let's go. Wow, this is a very long-anticipated podcast interview, and I'm so grateful to have you on the call. Welcome, Nick. Pleasure. What an enormous wealth of experience you have. How long were you in the Army? Oh, pretty well. I was there from um, age 17 up to age early 70s. Oh, my goodness. That's a really bloody long time. Well, um, I, had, uh, I had 25 years full-time service, and then I got out and did other things for a little bit. And then I, with no intention of ever associating myself with the military again, but um, before about a decade was out, I was drifting back to do consulting and then um, to do Army Reserve work. So as an Army Reservist, I was engaged with them for about another quarter of a century, so a long time. And that has given you a richness and a depth of understanding of leadership and particularly of leadership in the military context. My first question is about leadership. So I'm curious about how you define it and when you actually realized you could do it. Mm. I realized that I could do it decades after I began to actually pretend that I could do it. <laughs> Tell me about that. Well, when you're first commissioned, immediately after the Royal Military College, you're, you're going out raw into uh, groups and teams of um, pretty experienced senior NCOs and other officers and so forth. And you, for a little while, it takes you a while to to get your sea legs there and to find out how it's really done. Now, the Army has uh, this brilliant way of making it very easy for young officers to find their feet and to learn 
what they're doing well and what they're not doing so well and to build on the first and do something about the second. And that was uh, that was very beneficial to me as it has been for virtually every officer that I've ever spoken to. But I guess the um, what I meant by my sort of uh, uh, somewhat unusual answer that it wasn't until my early 60s that I actually knew that I could do it. It wasn't until then that I really knew what I was doing and that I could, I knew that uh, in, any, in this particular situation with which I was uh, confronted, I should do A. And then I should probably follow that with B or if something changed slightly, then C. And I knew why I had to do A and why B and C were good things to have up my sleeve. Uh, and what that arose from, Zoe, was the combination of two factors. Uh, the first was that uh, I had been not so much practising, but thinking about and analysing leadership for, for the best part of uh, three decades up until that point, both as a, a scholar and a management consultant. And then it all was all flung together um, after the 2009 bushfires in Marysville, which is my adopted hometown, where my, my wife and I were on that dreadful day and uh, we awoke the next morning to find the town was devastated, basically, and that the one of the big challenges was to bring the community together again and get it back on its feet and, uh, and thinking about a, a constructive future. And I joined a small group of uh, local citizens uh, who... Um, we set ourselves up as a, a community leadership group to advise the authorities on, to be basically the conduit between the community and the authorities. And in that particular role, uh, I found myself doing a lot of uh, leadership stuff because as, as well as that, I was uh, president of the Marysville Golf Club, which uh, in normal times is a sinecure, but in, in that particular year, it was one of the very few commercial entities left in Mary's or they had any sort of uh, meaningful role to play in terms of bringing people back to the district. So we had to, uh, we in the golf club had to get our act together very quickly and, uh, and do some lateral thinking and all sorts of um, interesting things that uh, would um, accomplish those commercial ends as well as those community building ends. So it was a very interesting time. But the, the really fascinating thing was, as I said, for the first time in my life, I actually knew, knew what I was doing. And it was um, intellectually, it was uh, exhilarating, uh, even as uh, at the same time, it was emotionally very draining for all sorts of reasons. Oh, yeah. Recovery from a disaster is tumultuous and emotionally stressful. Absolutely. I'm curious, though. So you started it raw at 17 and then decades later culminating in this experience around the bushfire situation how has your definition or experience or understanding of leadership changed from the beginning to that particular point mm. well it's sort of uh this is how i define leadership it's a process of engaging others in situations of uncertainty or danger or in anticipation of those particular circumstances. And what I hadn't really thought about in terms of that definition and um, something which I suspect by the lack of that final sort of clause within that definition or in anticipation of, 
I think a lot of other people haven't given it too much thought either. But um, when I began to think about what leadership was, I realized that uh, a leader operates not only in the moment, but in anticipation that one day that moment might arrive and it might be just around the corner. So in the mean, in the easy times, you work with your team, you lead that team in a way that makes it so much easier for you to engage them when the tough times come. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And I've heard it often said that the true test of a leader is not how things are going when things are going well, but what happens when the brown stuff hits the twirly thing and the chips are down and you've got to rally the troops. Um, yeah, but look, if I, if, if I may, um, I'll just sort of, I'll take slight issue with, with that. When, when things are going well, many sort of managers just sort of sit back, take it easy, stay in their offices, look after the intro and so forth without sort of going out and building that kind of engaged relationship with their team members that means that um, they have a, a relationship that they can draw upon when the brown stuff hits the proverbial and it's um, it's that that preparatory activity that I particularly admire in very good leaders that they lead in the easy times as they will in the tough times I think that's a really important aspect that you bring out in your book is that relational activity. So building that sense of tribe and connection and belongingness and purpose within the group so that I believe that connection is currency. And that when we do that activity that you describe, we build up the emotional bank account with our, with our team that we can draw down upon when it gets tough. And if you don't do that work, then you've got nothing to draw upon and things can fall apart. You put it very nicely. Thank you. Currency is a good word. <laughs> it's a little transactional, um, and yet there is always an exchange in leadership. It's what you bring to the table and what everybody else brings to the table. And if you're not putting anything in, there's you can't expect people just to stump up and perform, I don't reckon. Mm. So one of the things I was wanted to ask you about, like as we're recording this, we are in the middle of the coronavirus crisis, and in Australia we're kind of... Well, I see it was week three, but we could have commenced at any point. It is, what is the date today? The 1st of April, April Fool's Day. And there is a hell of a lot of uncertainty still yet ahead of us. Uh, so some of the questions might have been answered for the audience by the time we get uh, to this point and they listen to this episode. Leadership in a crisis, how do military leaders do it differently or do they do it differently than political leaders? What are the... What are the distinctions that you're observing in the political leaders or business leaders, how they're handling the crisis and how the military might handle it? Um, let's put political leaders to one side. Well, you don't want to do that, do you? Because you do actually want to parallel this with the uh, corona crisis. So, all right, let's deal with that. Um, probably not terribly much differently in that... Um, what we have at the moment uh, is sort of, it, it's a crisis for the community. Um, step back a bit. Let's, let's think about three, three kinds of problems. There are complicated problems, complex problems, and critical problems. Complicated problems are ones which are quite 
complicated, but there is dealing with them requires fairly straightforward methods in, in the sense that you can work out logically what you should do next. And a complex problem is one in which everything is up in the air. You don't know what will happen if you do A or B or C, but what you can be fairly confident about is that whichever one of those three courses you, you take, uh, there will be further issues that need to be solved down the track. And uh, in many cases, you can't really anticipate those. So you need to, to launch yourself into the, into the void in anticipation of having to, to do a lot more thinking about and not more thinking and acting in the future. And the critical crisis problem is, is where um, there is a crisis and time is very short and something needs to be done right now. Now, I think the, the current problem that we've got is sort of, it's a, it's a mixture of all three, really. Mm. But um, it's a complicated problem, which was my first category, in the medical terms. The, the medical experts and the scientists seem to have a pretty good idea on what the best way forward is. But it's a complex problem for the senior politicians, the government, in, in that they're not quite sure how their political constituency and the community is going to react to whatever action they take. They can anticipate that that action, at least in the first instance, will feel like fairly uh, drastic action from those in the, in the community, like total shutdown and closing schools and all that, all that sort of thing. So those will present political, complex political problems in terms of the definition of complex problem that I've uh, just given. But they are, in medical terms, they are not complex. They are complicated. The medicos know what we should do and what will be the consequences of our doing A or B or C. And therefore, they advise us to do A. Now, it's up to the politicians then to, to sell to their political and uh, electoral constituency that particular solution, which may not be seen in quite so straightforward terms by, uh, by those who are going to uh, be affected by the decision. Well, it's a systems thinking point of view, isn't it? So complexity is the interconnected pieces of the puzzle and complicated is it like there's some linear pieces that you need to put in place, but the complexity of interconnected business, politics, healthcare, environment, that's where it gets gray and fuzzy. And you can't just pull one lever and expect a domino effect. It's a spider web effect. And it's hard to know where the spider web might break or fall apart or have massive resonance. And I think that's the harder, that's definitely the harder leadership decisions to be made in there. And yes, the political case is the persuasion influence piece and saying, yes, we know we're going to pull this thread. We know that there's definitely going to be an impact here in business, say, for example, and in community. And yet we need to do it because of A, B, and C. But what we don't know is what's happening later on. Mm. But it is, uh, it is a crisis in the, in, the, in the sense that action is required right now. You can't just hang around until we sell the idea to everybody and get everybody on side. We can do that in sort of easier times, but not right now. 
So in terms of approach, the military approach would be the same as the political approach. Yes, that's right. In terms of positional power. Yes, that's right. And it'd be uh, an approach which I call directive. You say, this is what we are going to do. Mm. This is what the, uh, I have asked the experts, this is what their advice is. This is what we will do. They have told me that if we don't do this, things will be critical for all sorts of reasons, some of which I can spell out right now, and many of which will only emerge later, but there can be no argument about it. This is what we will do. And therefore, there will be sanctions on those who are not prepared to go along with what we are directing the Australian people to do. It's directive and it's almost affiliated and you may take umbrage at this with the command and control idea. We need to take control and then command what needs to happen. And it's one of the things that you talk about in your book straight up is that the military has long been accused of being a command and control institution. And you take umbrage with that and say, no, it's authoritative, not authoritarian. Can you tell me what the distinction is between being directive and authoritative? Is there a distinction or is it contextual? Um. Being authoritative means that you you win trust and compliance by your level of authority, by the extent to which you present yourself as a person worth following, as a person whose opinion and direction is worth following. That's authoritative. Authoritarian is saying, is where, where you say, I don't care what you think, do it. Mm. And I don't care what you think of me, do it or there will be adverse consequences for you. So in a sense, the government is sort of balancing themselves between those, those two uh, distinctions. It's an interesting, it's a power issue. And I've just read this book called The Power Paradox, which talks about how people are given power as you've as you've described, winning authority is kind of like winning power. And you do it by, as in the book, he talks about you win power, you win authority by showing up and being in service to others and for the greater good of the group. And that's what you're saying. That's being authoritative. And being a generous, reasonable, engaging leader is how you do that. And there's a pivot point that can sometimes happen is that when leaders are given that authority or given that power by grace of their team or their cohort or their organization or even by the political mass of political elections is that something can happen in individual leaders where that power, they say, goes to their head. But what actually happens is that all the accolades and the accoutrement, I want to say it in French accent. Oui, oui. Uh, <laughs> oh, very good. You speak French. Um, all the trappings of power, which are around privilege, because there is an exchange. When you take responsibility for the group and take care of the group, you get some stuff in, in return. It can be status, it can be money, it can be uh, recognition. That people get a little bit hooked on that, and they can switch over to being authoritarian as a result, uh, because they don't want to all of a sudden lose this power that they've been granted. And it's, it's an interesting switch that can happen, where you can become power-hungry. I'm curious about your experience with that, because I don't know much about the military in terms of not having worked in it or with it. Does that happen sometimes where you get leaders who oh, switch course, from yeah. authority? Yeah. What, what have you noticed? What, what causes the switch? What have you observed the switch to happen? No, you've, uh, you've put the sort of, um, that sort of lead up situation. You've described that quite accurately. Uh, you do start to believe your own legend. 
I love it. Start to believe you. Did that ever happen to you? Uh, well, it must have done because it happens <laughs> to, especially junior leaders. You know, they think they're, they're really uh, king of the heap. And this is where the, the military has, uh, has evolved brilliant sort of social and institutional mechanisms to deal with this. You, you will have noticed the, uh, the number of times in my book where I refer to the situation where the senior warrant officer comes into the company commander's or the platoon commander's office, closes the door behind him and says, sir, I think we need to have a little talk. And that, in fact, is uh, cited by David Morrison in, the, in his preface to the, to the book where um, he was a, a rapscallion second lieutenant and his, uh, his platoon sergeant one day came into the office, closed the door, said, you and I need to have a little talk, sir. And he pointed out in no uncertain terms to young Second Lieutenant Morrison that, uh, that he wasn't being a particularly good leader, that he wasn't living up to the, the legacy which, um, which his father and, uh, and other previous regimental leaders had, had laid down. And unless he sorted himself out, young Second Lieutenant Morrison, uh, he was most unlikely to go terribly much further in the army or enjoy his time while, while he was there. And uh, Second Lieutenant Morrison, like uh, all sensible young officers, took notice of this and changed his ways. And that exists at every level within the, within the army and the, and the Navy and the Air Force institutional system. So there's this, what I call the par a parallel chain of command, all those senior NCOs and senior warrant officers who are there at the commanding officer's elbow, the commanding general's elbow, the platoon commander's elbow. And one of their main roles is to straighten out that officer. In the, in the army, you've got two sets of ranks. You've got officers and uh, what is uh, unfortunately called other ranks. And it means that their uh, officers are those who hold the Queen's commission and they come in and begin their careers as young leaders and advance to senior leaders if they're good enough. And on the NCO side, they are the, the people who are there to be the backup bloke, the shotgun rider, the conscience of the officer to whom they're appointed. So a platoon commander has a platoon sergeant, a company commander has a company sergeant major, a commanding officer has a regimental sergeant major, and so it goes up the, up the tree. And at each of those particular levels, one of the major responsibilities of that senior NCO is to keep his or her officer on the right track and to give them good feedback when they need it, um, positive feedback as well as uh, criticism, and there to be sort of uh, to detect some of the things in the background which uh, a busy um, officer might not actually be tuned into and needs to needs to know about for example how the troops are likely to react to course a or b or c it reminds me of the story from roman generals who were returning to rome in a triumph and it was a whole massive process and they had the generals dressed up in purple togas and drenched in blood for this amazing ceremony where they get all these 
accolades thrown at them and it's a huge celebration. There's always somebody according to, I'm not sure it was a real story or whether this was a made up one. Somebody would sit behind them in the chariot as they paraded through the streets going, remember, you're just a man. Yeah. <laughs> and it's meant to pull them down a peg or two and remind them not to get carried away with their own hubris. It sounds a bit like that. Yeah, I suspect that is uh, that, that is a valid depiction of history, Zoe. That's certainly, it must be one of the factors that kept the Roman legions so militarily effective all those centuries. Oh, I think hubris is one of the things they battled with a lot uh, in terms of their of their leadership. But you can see that as whichever general you want to look at, whichever senator you want to look at, whichever emperor you want to look at, this whole notion of power and how it was one taken over, manipulated is a fascinating study. It's one of the things I'm mostly interested in in ancient Rome. Mm. Uh, the point that I wanted to to highlight, though, and what your observation is about these institutional systems that help keep people from embracing that whole power issue. And you talk about this in your book, that every young soldier is taught to be a leader and to take on the mantle of leadership and that feedback up, that challenging of discussions, that challenging of decisions is embedded in the systems. And you've just highlighted yet another part of that, which is the parallel chain of command, where you have your offsider, you know, making sure that they're running point on whatever your decisions are. Because that makes it a lot easier to give feedback up the chain. I often have leaders asking me that. What do I need to give feedback to my supervisor? And in civilian and business world, we don't often have organizations that have that system or that cultural ethos in place. And I think this is one of the most valuable things that you contribute through your book and the military contributes is this idea of, yeah, you need to absolutely need to challenge authority. What's your observation since you did 10 years out, out in, out or in, in consulting where those processes might not be in place? Is this something that you've observed as well? Oh, yes. And um, there were two particular organizations to that, that come to mind uh, the first was the Australian Tax Office, um, for whom I did an annual survey for about five successive years, during a time when they were going through a, a massive planned organisational change. This was under the, the stewardship of Commissioner Trevor Boucher. So we're talking about the mid-1980s, mid to late 80s. And um, Boucher recognised that he, he needed to, to change the organisation drastically and one of the ways that he that he did this was to get me to do this sort of fairly sophisticated in those days annual survey and then break the results down to the lowest possible level and sort of give feedback uh, even to the kind of uh, departmental manager level. Now, tax, like the vast majority of organisations, especially in the public service, didn't have that parallel chain of command, but... In this particular case, the survey results were a kind of substitute. It showed that Mary Bloggs, the survey results showed Mary Bloggs that she was doing a good job. Uh, and at the same time, they showed Bill Baggins down the corridor that he needed to lift his game in these, in these particular ways. And Boucher would get all of these findings and he would get in touch with these particular managers and remind them that uh, these were the implications of the survey for their particular department and their particular leadership style, so they'd better do something about it. 
And it was, it was rather thrilling actually, because you could see across successive surveys, you could see the extent to which most managers did actually act on that. And as a, as a consequence, uh, commitment and performance in the, in the tax office rose considerably. And it was a much better performing organization at the end of that five year period than, um, than it started out. So that was a, that's the first case study. The second case study relates to a, another survey I did for a company called Schlumberger Wireline and Testing. At the time I did it for them, they were one of the most successful companies in the world. Schlumberger, if you want to drill for oil somewhere, you send Schlumberger out in advance to determine whether it, uh, it's going to be worthwhile, whether the, um, the soil, the sort of uh, environment's going to, going to actually work for you. And so they're, they're highly skilled, highly accurate, and very much in demand. Now, when I began to work for, consult for Schlumberger, felt I was at home. There was something about this particular environmental culture, just the, the climate that was, it was familiar. And then it, it struck me that uh, Schlumberger had very much the kind of professional career development system and therefore the kind of leadership culture that the army had. So that when um, young Schlumberger engineers were launched out of the world, they, they were like uh, platoon commanders who would, uh, who would go out to a remote spot to do some drilling and uh, analyzing. And they would be accompanied by a team of hardened professionals, one of whom was the sort of foreman. And that foreman served in the kind of, was a quasi platoon sergeant who was prepared to tell that junior engineer whether he was doing a good job or a bad job and how he could polish his act. And as a consequence, Schlumberger managers just got better and better. And they, um, that, that was the fundamental, one of, one of the fundamental drivers that made that company one of the most successful in the world. So it's, it was interesting to see those two kinds of uh, parallels during my consulting career. I have a question for you around military professionals who leave the military and go into civilian life. And I've met a number of them who, where the transition is, is challenging. And I think perhaps it's, as you allude to, there's different cultures in different workplaces. And some of them are resonant with the military culture and some of them are not. Tell me why you think it is, am I right or am I wrong about do military professionals find it difficult to transition into civilian uh, businesses or not? And if they do, what are the challenges that they face? Yes, uh, but uh, they do. Uh, they, there's always sort of uh, adjustment uh, issues and, and some do find it challenging, but maybe not for the reasons you were kind of uh, alluding to there, Zoe. I think you're sort of, what you are implying is that the, military leader is used to giving orders and they will be obeyed. And then when he or she goes out of the civilian world and gives an order and goodness me, it's not being obeyed properly, they're kind of at a loss and they get all blustery and um, bang the table-ish. And goodness me, that didn't work, did it? <laughs> Only made the situation worse, didn't it? So there, there was that particular stereotype, but uh, from my experience, that's comparatively rare, especially in the contemporary era where we've got um, 
very well-educated and very sophisticated young and middle-level officers who, when they when they leave the services, um, fit very nicely into a, a new organisation because they're they're bright enough and experienced enough to know what they they need to be accommodating at first and to win their spurs with that particular group before they start needing to push their weight around. But where I, where I personally found uh, difficulty in uh, adjusting was I went to a civilian organisation and naively thought that everybody there would be as loyal to the institution and to their colleagues as I was. I'd come from a, an institution where basically it was a team culture. We were all there for the team and we, uh, as well as doing our own job, we, we all needed to do what needed to be done for the bloke next door uh, or up or down from us. In the civilian, uh, in the, the university that I joined and in the uh, consulting corporation that I, that I joined when I left the university, Alas, that wasn't the case, and uh, it caused me a lot of angst and wasted a lot of time before I twigged to that slow learner me. Well, I think it's all about new experiences, and if you've grown up in a culture where belonging and that sense of team is embedded in everything you do and is, it becomes the water that you swim in, and it's when you only go to a different pond, you go, something's not quite right here. And I've certainly seen that in the university sector. It's a very their systems generate a different culture. And I think this is true of every organization. If you have problems in the culture, it's generally due to the systems that are in place and the values that underpin it. And I think you're right. Uh, the military has a similar approach to teaming that I've experienced in my outdoor wilderness organizations, which are completely different ethos in some ways, but that we have in common, the being part of a group and being having each other's back and working collectively and collaboratively for a common good and that sense of real intimacy and connection with your peers is something that wasn't replicated in other places that I went to or have consulted to. And I think this is one of the most rightly that you put in the book is one of the other valuable pieces that other businesses and enterprises could take from the military. And we talked about this earlier, the relational aspect of leadership is, is critically important if you're going to get the best out of your people. Um, and, and a lot of that stems from the reward system uh, in, the, um, in the sense that in an institution, in a professional institution like the military, um, you are not going to get ahead if you alienate your colleagues. When you're a young officer, if you're a, a bossy prick, if I can uh, go for use it, use a word like that. <laughs> you certainly can. <laughs> then you you will make enemies, and in the medium to longer term, those enemies will remember the kind of person that you were, and they will make career decisions about you, which will be influenced by by that negative opinion. Whereas if you are a cooperative team player, they, that will be remembered for the long term. Now, in the, in the corporate field, um, it was kind of uh, every person for him or herself. And uh, until that particular culture, that particular reward system could have been changed, and I left that particular corporation long before they actually tackled that, I didn't even want to front up to that particular bear factor. 
unless they're willing to deal with that, and they're going to have the same, they're going to suffer those particular, not so much suffer the uh, the problems. They they won't know that they are suffering, but they will be, and uh, they won't. They'll be performing not so well as they might have done, and they'll never know the reason. Mm. Very, very interesting insight. My last question is, what is the best piece of advice anyone has given you about leadership? The best piece of advice? Um, I suppose, very simply, uh, something which came to me fairly early on in my career and then was embedded by experience as I went on, shut up and listen. (laughs) That's a good piece of advice. (laughs) Now, shut up and listen has a number of benefits. I can think just off the top of my head of at least two. The first is um, you will learn something about the complexities of that situation by hearing the views and the observations of others. And you can incorporate those views and observations into your, into your own thinking and they'll be much better informed as a consequence. The second reason, and I knew there'd be a third, but the, the second reason is that you're shutting up and listening, especially in critical situations, makes your followers much more likely to feel comfortable about raising tricky issues with you when the chips go down. So it makes them much more willing to speak up and give you vital information which will stand you in good stead when you you and they, perhaps, are making the decision about where do we go from here. And the third reason is that um, you make them feel better about themselves. And the extent to which you make them feel better about themselves improves their sense of agency and means that they are much more confident to have a go and to stretch themselves in the future. So you, you are building people at the same time as you're solving problems. I love that. Building people at the same time as solving problems. Nick, where can people get a copy of Leadership Secrets of the Australian Army? Available in all good bookshops. <laughs> Or on order from Alan and Unwin. Yeah, fantastic. It's been a real privilege having uh, having you on the podcast and hearing some of your wonderful stories and insights. I think this is a really valuable book that everyone should read and absorb uh, for its critical applications to business and, what, and whatever enterprise. So thank you so much, Nick. My pleasure, Zoe. Great to talk. Now that is somebody who has a lot of tales to tell and a lot of wisdom gleaned over a lifetime of leadership experiences. What a privilege it was to listen to some of his insights and wisdom. So the stuff I'm taking away from this one was be careful when you start to believe your own legend. I think that's really useful. And to have with that an embedded system that can check your leadership, whether you have a culture of feedback loops a way of encouraging challenging decisions and challenging leadership, I think is one of the most important things I'm going to take away from this interview. And the other piece, which is shut up and listen. All right. Thanks very much. And in the meantime, live well, lead well. And if you enjoyed today's podcast, click share and send it on to someone you care about. Thanks.